You are listening to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. Now in its 20th year, the Lumen Christi Institute enriches academic communities at the University of Chicago and across the nation with the wisdom of the Catholic intellectual and spiritual tradition. Today's interview is with Father Andrew Logminas, chaplain of Calvert House Catholic Chaplaincy at the University of Chicago. We sat down with Father Andrew in the Gavin House Library to discuss his path to the priesthood, his studies in Rome, and his teaching and pastoral ministry. Welcome to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. I'm Michael Bradley, the Communications and Events Coordinator, and I'm here with Mark Franzen in the Gavin House Library to interview Father Andrew Logminas, the chaplain of Calvert House Catholic Chaplaincy here at the University of Chicago. And we're just going to dive right into things here. Father, welcome. Thank you very much. It's Thanks wonderful for, to be with you all. Thank you for joining us today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your assignment at Calvert? You're new there this past fall. Mm-hmm. So tell us what a typical week looks like for you. We know that you're doing some new and exciting programming there. Yeah, I began last July. I just finished my doctoral uh, research work in Rome. And coming right off of that, the assignment was to come to Calvert House and to become director and chaplain at Calvert House, which is our Catholic outreach here at the University of Chicago. A very exciting group of students and faculty are there. And just wonderful initiatives that already were in place as I came in there. And so I just came in to try to expand and, and really further those initiatives, as well as to start a few new initiatives with the students and the faculty there. And I found a very welcoming presence, as well as people who were ready to run with a lot of these ideas we had in terms of ways to really continue to expand our presence and to continue to deepen. And those two dimensions are kind of an idea I've been using as I've been speaking about our programs to coordinate a lot of what we're doing so they're not simply disparate, separate activities. Any particular ministry can fall into having a lot of different separate ministries or things without a a vision. So I thought what we're going to do is we have to have a vision within which and according to which we can then correlate and constellate all the different ministries we're doing. So the vision that in prayer I came up with was this idea that we're doing two things at once. We're going both deeper in Christ and wider with the church. The two form a cross, I guess, conceptually. But we're at the same time, we're calling each individual student, faculty, and staff, every person who comes to Calvert House, to go deeper, deeper, and deeper in Christ. That's a deeper personal relationship with Christ, which one finds in prayer, which one finds through one's study of the Word of God, study of theology, study of the church's teachings. It's a constant call to wherever one finds oneself, go deeper. It's a reminder from the church fathers and our tradition that as soon as we stop going deeper, we stagnate, we actually fall back. There's no stasis in the spiritual life. You're either falling back or you're progressing forward. And so it calls us to continue to go deeper, to grow in holiness. As long as we're not yet reached the beatific vision, we're called to continue to grow in that regard. So that's the first bar of it, the first rung, going deeper in Christ. But in and of itself, that can become very individualizing or individualistic in one extreme if it's just by itself. So it's constantly shot through with this kind of expanded, with this wider with the church. A vision of realization that we always grow deeper in Christ in the ecclesial context, in the church, with the fullness of the church, the church here on earth, the church in heaven, the church suffering in purgatory. We're we're a whole communal presence together, which we support each other through our prayers, through our presence, through our conversation. An ecclesial presence we can really be proud of and grow in. So that's a growing wider with the church at the same time as growing deeper in Christ. And that vision I've tried to articulate and 
encourage the people who run ministries at Calvert House to use to think through how their own ministry, how their own projects or activities fit within that vision of always going deeper and wider at the same time. Speaking of going deeply into Christ, it was remarked to me last week after one of the Masses that you said at 1230 that Father Andrew is the priest who packs about 100 minutes worth of content into a five-minute homily. <laughs> so I think at least as far as the depth is concerned, you're, uh, you're leading the ship well there. Thank you. You'll have an opportunity, right, to put some of these interests and gifts to use at Mundelein yes. starting in the fall. Tell us about that. Exactly. So already from the beginning when I was assigned here, there was an idea that I would have a connection still to Mundelein Seminary. I have a very, of course, large seminary up in the north part of the city of the Chicagoland area up in Lake County. We have seminarians there not only for the Archdiocese of Chicago, but also seminarians for many seminaries really from coast to coast. It is really something of a national seminary, one of the largest, of course, of the American seminaries. And with that, having a, a foot also in teaching, uh, even the idea is I'll be teaching one class each semester. So I'd probably go up in the evening, teach the class in the morning, and come back down to Calvert House. Uh, it would work very well within the schedule of things uh, here, but it would allow still the opportunity to continue teaching because one who is done the academic work, it, you really like to have an outlet where you can continue to teach and also being in touch with the seminarians. I think there will be a very good confluence of having connection both with the students here who are doing their studies, the, the higher intellectual studies here, as well as the, our future priests, both of Chicago and, and, and beyond, uh, seeing what questions they're asking, helping them. And I do think that there is a confluence. The, seeing where our young adults are today, those who are doing studies here at the University of Chicago, what questions they're asking, how they're accessing the Word of God, how they're integrating into their lives can bring insights, I think, in the teaching of the future priests um, at Mundelein, which I'll be doing, and vice versa, the opportunity of teaching them, staying fresh with the theology, right on the cutting edge of the teaching of the theology, I think could really help the ministry here at Calvert House. So I do think there is a, a confluence in those two factors. And I think in, in view of that confluence, if these priests whom you're forming don't go out and give great homilies to young people, now we know who to blame. <laughs> yeah, right. But So you've touched on something that I was looking forward to asking you about. Next year, I guess this coming year in 2018, the Worldwide Synod for Bishops right. is on the theme of young people, the faith, and vocational discernment. So I wanted to ask you, as a, as a young priest who will be working both with forming priests, who will be speaking to young people in the future generations, and who ministers directly to young people now, if, if there's one or two or even three things that you'd like to see the Synod focus on and kind of drive home, at least insofar as the Synod's the fruits of the Synod are applicable to Amer the American Church, what would you say are three, two or three key things? I think sometimes when we talk about young adult ministry or uh, ministry to uh, responding to the questions of young adults today, sometimes we're very responsive insofar as watching what they do and try to respond, how can we speak to that? And a classic example is looking at how do young adults use social media and things like that, and then responding to, okay, how can we respond in those channels? And I think there's something very good about that. It's something necessary. It's also helpful that we don't forget as a church what we've done throughout our entire intellectual tradition is also setting the trend as well. Um, actually thinking forward to think, how can we articulate our faith in such a way as not solely responding to what are the questions that are being asked, but actually create the intellectual climate, create the actual questions forming the young the adults, young, the young adult mind, in such a way that they'll be then asking questions with the church, which is a challenge because already sometimes we find ourselves behind the curve and trying to catch up and just keeping up with where people are at. But we'll never be able to compete fully with those things that are online and trying to compete for young adults' attention, but probably nor should we because the gospel message has a vibrancy. It has a, a clarity that is compelling in and of itself. And so 
the challenge for us always with that is to be able to articulate it in a way, especially with young adults, with their lives have so many obligations, so many uh, competing commitments, to be able to speak at the moment that there's an availability. One thinks of the Gospel of John, those conversations, especially early on in the Gospel of John, although throughout the Gospel, where there's deep penetrating conversations, women at the well with Nicodemus, etc., where Christ is able to penetrate to the question, even the question that the person might not even know they're asking the question. This struck me recently reflecting on the woman at the well where Jesus was able to name the thirst of that woman at the well before she even recognized it or before she could articulate it. He gave her the language and the knowledge, the discernment within which to recognize her thirst and then to actually pose the desire for Christ. I think to do that is so essential. And we sometimes can forget about it, just trying to catch up with the trends. But if we forget that, we'll cut ourselves short of what we're actually able to offer young adults. And we'll never actually be able to attain the goal we're seeking. And of course, there's a father, now Bishop Robert Barron, yes. Um, yes. formerly of Mundelein, is kicking off a conference in South Bend this week with a talk about how to reach the nuns, yes. the so-called millennial nuns. Let's talk a little bit about your vocation, about how you came to the diocesan priesthood, in particular for the archdiocese. We know that your mother, Sheila Logminas, has a program on relevant radio, and that she's an author through Ignatius Press and has a great program there. So you obviously received the faith well yes. as you were growing up. But tell us about your own formation growing up and how you came about discerning secular as opposed to religious priesthood, yes. etc. Yes. I would say that there are two main dimensions in my vocation story, which are intertwined and interrelated in such a way it's hard to would pull them apart. But one of which would be the, uh, you might say, the, almost the traditional way that Chicago priests came to realize, discern, and ultimately accept their vocations for over 100 years. And part of my story, my own vocation story, is very much integrated within that picture. I fit within a, a continuity, and I can explain how what that looked like in Chicago Archdiocese for so many years. Uh, but part of it also is what would be common with a lot of young adults nowadays is the integration of their own questions, their own intellectual pursuits within that to actually really discover for oneself, to come to that personal conviction that this is indeed not only a good way, but this is in fact the way the, the way of truth, the way I'm called, that this is uh, good, worthy, it's beautiful, it's worthwhile giving my entire life to. In fact, that's the only way I can envision living life as such that the, the call of the gospel is the way because it's meant for me in this particular configuration. So those two factors, namely, in Chicago, we've had a, being a city which has a lot of Catholic uh, immigration historically, it was a city that grew up with a lot of Catholic institutions, parishes, hospitals. The city, even till this day, has parishes that also act as reference points for neighborhoods. That's to say that Chicago Catholicism has had an integration with the social fabric that you would grow up in your parish, you would be active and involved as an altar server and other ministries, and then the, the priest who knew you already would be able to then identify various individuals, young men, who were showed a, an aptitude, an interest, a vocational potential, and then you would call them by name. That would occur sometime around 7th or 8th grade. And I say that for a lot of Chicago priests, that was my own story as well. I was an altar boy in, a, in the parish, very active, loved the Catholic faith, entire devotions, as well as liturgy, as well as reading. And it was you know, very much part of my own experience. And it was right around that time that a very inspirational priest, a very, a very strong, he'd been a priest for many, many years, um, just a, a great example of priestly witness, mentioned to me before morning mass one morning, I was sitting there prepared, ready to go, you know, ultra boy and everything. He said, you know, they ever thought about being a priest? And it wasn't the first thing I was thinking about at that point. I was thinking about other possible occupations and vocations. But it really it planted the seed in my mind right at the right time. He knew me well enough to know when that time 
would be. It was the right moment to consider it. And so I brought it to prayer. And and what you did at that time in Chicago, you would go down to the high school seminary if you were interested at all in, in priesthood. So the pastor took a group of the altar boys down. And how it happened was you would discern one step at a time. So that's how I discovered it. You discern the high school seminary. Okay, well, that's the next step. Now you discern the college seminary. Okay, that's the next step. Then the major seminary within which you're being formed and clearly little by little that clarity about the next step emerges so it's a very institutional based you might say based in the very fabric of the archdiocese this has really changed over the years partially due to cultural changes which cardinal george identified back in the early 2000s and partially also due to the fact that our institutions have changed the archdiocese has also institutionally changed over the years also in reflection to the cultural changes we don't have that high school seminary now and things have also changed with how people discern in certain ways so i experience being on the other end of that now because a lot of people are discerning religious vocations priesthood in the context of the university newman centers catholic uh, centers like we have here at the university of chicago are becoming then the front lines for young people to discern and really the predominant group of those we have coming into seminary tend to be coming from secular universities, sometimes Catholic universities as well, but we have from people really active in their Catholic faith, wherever they are, uh, discerning vocation um, and coming from the context of already having completed at least the undergraduate, sometimes even a graduate degree, and then coming into seminary, which is a cultural shift, huge cultural shift in just 20 years, uh, 15 to 20 years. So that's the one dimension. The second dimension in short is as I was going through, of course, the seminary and the, for example, in the university uh, seminary studies, I really picked and I chose courses that were very fascinating for me, particularly questions that allowed me, of course, within the context of my philosophical studies, to pursue deeply questions of how the faith relates to culture and relates to science and the questions that were both very interesting for me, but I knew would be very useful and helpful for ministry. And I had benefited from excellent teachers who really inspired me both in philosophy and in theology and in other disciplines as well, and really fired me up for the intellectual life, a potential that was was there, but it was really set on fire by some excellent teachers I had. And so I continue to give thanks for teachers I had there in the university as well as in the major seminary who really expanded and widened that love. So the two dimensions of both the institutional kind of historic as Chicago priests have always been formed, but then something I have in common with a lot of how younger people alum nowadays are, are kind of coming to vocation is through a university which uh, really inspires them and, and puts, sets their hearts on fire, like the road to Emmaus, weren't our, weren't our hearts burning within us, set their hearts on fire for the truth of the faith in a way which allows them credibly to give their lives in this culture today, to say, yes, I have a conviction, almost like an evangelical conviction for this being the truth of the faith, and I'm willing to give my life as a witness to it radically in a world which, you know, it's not a normal thing to be doing. <laughs> Let's talk about those intellectual pursuits of yours. So you were sent by the Archdiocese to the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome Correct. to do your doctoral studies. We'd be very interested to hear what you wrote your dissertation on, what first got you interested in that subject, and also I'd like to know whether what you did your dissertation on you see ramifying in the course of your kind of everyday pastoral ministry, or, or does it remain up in the clouds or back in Rome or wherever it may be? <laughs> no, actually, it's... When I started the, the studies, it's one of those things, and I think any doctoral student could probably perhaps speak to it. You don't necessarily start out on the path knowing 
the end. And actually, when I thought I did, the secretary for the Faculty of Theology at the Pontifical Gregorian University very kindly reminded, well, in a nice conversation, said, this is just the, the path towards the towards the dissertation. She said, it's very normal if your path ends up taking different turns, etc. And it, it did. I mean, it was actually rather close to what I was hoping once I actually articulated the project. It was actually a rather close path, but still it took twists and turns. But that's part of the process of discovery, which is a high priority at the Gregorian University is being open open to perhaps theological discoveries along the way of your research. But in short, I, I was uh, sent over already with the goal of getting my doctorate in dogmatic theology. Uh, and I was told at the time, so there was uh, Bishop Barron was a rector of Mundelein Seminary at the time, and uh, it was already within that context that I was going over with a, a goal of ultimately being able to be a professor at Mundelein Seminary. And so in conversations with him and conversations with Cardinal George, the ideas and topics of what possibly to study were coming up in, in these conversations, uh, as of course they do. And I was told I could pursue anything within dogmatic theology, just be prepared you know, to be free to teach within that dogmatic theology, which was great to have a, a certain license to pursue what the Holy Spirit would inspire me to do, as well as what I saw the most potential in doing. And so going over, I had originally intended to work more with theological anthropology. There's some questions that were very interesting for me and kind of motivated me initially. But within a very short period of time when I got over to Rome, there was a need for, within the Christology, um, a professor who was teaching Christology, he had a need for a student, a doctoral student assistant who would help teach the course in, in Christology. And I had some experience with this in the past in my license phase, the master's phase of, of doing some student teaching with Christology. And Christology is what I did my, my license degree work on. So it was a lot of interest in it. And so it was delightful to see Christology reemerge, which was not my initial plan. And once I saw what the professor's interests were, initially he wasn't my advisor, but he expressed an interest very shortly after. If you are interested in pursuing Christology, he'd be willing to be my doctoral advisor. So I told that to uh, Bishop Barron, I told that to Cardinal George, and they said, if somebody is telling you that they'd be willing to be your advisor in Rome, <laughs> you say yes. <laughs> and so, which is, I'm so glad I did. And it just set my heart on fire again for Christology, the study of, of Christ, theologically speaking, as, as a discipline, and soteriology related to that as well. Within which, then, I started to open up to the questions of Christology. And of course, as things go, when one tends to pursue it as a purely intellectual discipline, um, you end up looking at the literature and whereas there's spaces in the literature, what hasn't been done. But I was finding very rapidly the questions were a bit stale and a bit forced when I was finding, okay, there's a gap here, but I mean, how interesting is that gap? There's another gap here, okay, but you know, fine. Yeah, but do I really want to, I have one chance to do a doctorate. Do I want to do a doctorate on that? So that's kind of the process that was coming. And then I remember a conversation with, I believe it was Bishop Barron at the time, Father Barron at Mundelein, surfaced the idea of perhaps looking at Aquinas' scripture commentaries as a starting point for reflection. And he mentioned there was a republication of one of the uh, commentaries, particularly the commentary on John, which is incredibly deep and rich uh, theologically. So he kind of put the bug in my ear to look at the, the commentary on John. And so I went back to the commentary on John. Sure enough, it's it's incredibly rich, deep commentary. It, I had seen it in the past here and there, but to actually read it at, at the depths here, Aquinas is in a very mature phase. It's one of his last scripture commentaries. It's his second Paris Regency towards the very end of his life. He has come now 
with the whole, he's amassed a body of wisdom theologically. His uh, commentaries on Aristotle have brought him a whole philosophical depth. And here he's bringing this all before the word of God, trying to unpack. He saves John for the end because he realizes the theological depth about the divinity of Christ. It, it really does require building up to. And so here you see Aquinas at his, his shining splendor. It comes out there. And it's also a very different approach to Aquinas than oftentimes uh, people will have if they just approach the systematic works, which of course are masterpieces in their own right. But you have a different, the mind of the theologian looks very differently, especially since he is a master of the sacred page. That is his official role at the University of Paris at the time. So that's something he takes very seriously. He brings us before the word of God is reading scripture. And it's, again, it's it's just marvelous. Um, And I realized there, there was in the English-speaking literature, especially in French, there's there's a number of studies that are emerging. But in English, there's still we still have a lot of ways to go with the scripture studies and Aquinas' commentaries and his sermons. It's still kind of rather new, especially in the English realm. So I thought, good, there's you know some realm here. And long story short, it was actually um, a Sunday after mass and conversations with other priests, and I was just sitting down to uh, do some other reading, not academic reading, just kind of um, some leisure reading. And the idea came of not approaching this from the direction of the gaps in the literature, but just looking at the themes of John's gospel and then approaching how Aquinas dealt with those themes in the commentary. It seems intuitive, but it's it, it's more spiritually intuitive than it is perhaps academically intuitive. So I did that, and shortly thereafter, it emerged that the theme of Christ's glory in the gospel of John, of course, is a topic of great depth in John's gospel. But also, it's a, it's a theme that has such dogmatic implications and is not, it's it's one of those themes that wasn't as articulated in the tradition as perhaps, for example, Christ's natures, his person, the wills of Christ. It's one that has a lot of room for being able to discuss different aspects or perhaps different theories on, on Christ's glory in the Gospel of John, articulating in different ways. And Aquinas was onto it. And that's when I caught that. I saw Aquinas was aware of the Christological depth as well as the unresolved nature of some of those questions. And he was really working it out in the context of that commentary. And I realized that I I thought there were for certain studies on this matter, but in fact, it was hardly done. It had almost nothing on the topic. And that's what gave birth to the dissertation. Shortly thereafter, it was on the same day, in fact, that that discovery came that I realized, well, at the Gregorian, there's a preference for also being able to have theological dialogue in your dissertation with some other kinds of lines of thinking. And so I thought, well, I'll find another theologian who wrote on this topic, and I'll kind of have a, something of a comparison or something at least of a dialogue to kind of put into uh, contrast the different ways of thinking about this matter. And within seconds, I, th- I think, who else has done writings on uh, Christ's glory? Well, of course, Balthazar. And his first part of the theological uh, trilogy was the aesthetics, the glory of the Lord in English, right? Well, in German, too. So anyhow, that kind of gave birth to the dissertation of taking both Aquinas' and Balthazar's understanding of that, both of which are very Johannine-based, and diving in deeply and basically exploring it with a certain question that was my thesis question, but that was the, the nature of the dissertation. And do you find that the work you did there on the dissertation has has had application in your pastoral work? I mean, you, yes. s- you spoke earlier of Christ's glory right. being interconnected with a lot of dogmatic concerns, right. which then hopefully you can package at an intelligible level for the students and deliver to them. Precisely, precisely. Especially in this particular context, both Aquinas and Balthazar were working with students as they're writing these works. Aquinas at the University of Paris, a very intellectual uh, hub of intellectual life, of course, of Europe at the time, 
And Balthazar, of course, was a chaplain, a university chaplain as well. And so they were on the front lines of questions their students were bringing into the course from wherever their students were coming from. They were also very conscious of the importance of articulating a form, a vision for what this is as not just simply the kind of a content, but also being able to evangelically portray how this works for one's spiritual life. And in that regards, of course, you see the preacher in both of them coming out, although it's not something that would be immediately noticeable, but it's there because they're both preachers. And so in this regard, I found being able to grasp the, both the content and the form of this question, because this question has both, has really animated my own ability to preach uh, and take some of the gospel messages and evangelically convey them to students and to the faculty who are here. And uh, yeah, in that regards, I think it definitely has animated my own ministry. And here's the final burning question for our listeners. Who wins, Aquinas <laughs> or von Balthasar? <laughs> Well, the question itself presumes that's a winner. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, you'll have to read the dissertation. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Well, Father Andrew Logminas, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. To access more resources, please visit our website and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The music for this episode, Sequence for St. Hilarion, is recorded by the Lumen Christi Institute Artists-in-Residence, Scola Antiqua of Chicago, on their CD, West Meets East, Sacred Music from the Torino Codex.